Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, everybody, welcome. We got a full house here across the table from Mark and myself is Ruben Alexson. We have Dr. Dylan Easley and Mr. Garrett Grover. And uh, if you haven't actually checked out the last podcast that Dylan and Garrett were on, it is in our top 10 bolt guns versus gas guns at long range. I don't know if you guys knew that. Top I did 10, not. Top I did 10 not material. Know that. Wow, that's Big awesome. time, you guys. So I mean, you guys have done what, 11 podcasts now? Yeah. I didn't know they gave ribbons for 10th place. Oh. <laughs> oh. Just kidding. No, it's actually really, it's like, it's amazing because we've done a, what? How many? More than 100. Definitely more than North that. North of yeah. 100. That's awesome. So that's really cool. Definitely, definitely over top 10%. So, yeah. Anyway, with this one, we wanted to discuss uh, any smattering of things related to uh, preparing for competition season, because you guys shoot competitively. And, um, man, kicking it off, I know one of the things that Ruben was telling me, Dylan, you in particular do a lot of, uh, and a lot of people that listen are interested in is reloading. And uh, we've talked primarily in the tenses of reloading, I think more for the precision long-range stuff. Now, I know you do some PRS too, right? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. So you reload a lot of just like 5.56, five, right, for your AR and uh, three-gun, and I think you do tactical games too. Are you reloading for that as Did well? Did that one. Uh, the schedule this year doesn't work out too well for tactical games oh, okay. uh, just because of where the, the events are placed, but mostly for three-gun and then practice and then also probably going to be a little bit for PRS. Yeah. Now, explain reloading for 5.56. Five, I know sometimes people do it just to do it in bulk, to get a lot of it, hopefully save a little bit of money for the amount that they're loading up. I know you also, from what I've heard, go a little bit further, and you start, I mean, your rifle is pretty raced out, you know, whatever, oh, and yeah. you start reloading almost to your muzzle brake or to other stuff, or, well, I don't know. How does that work I know, out? I know Garrett and I do it a little bit different when it comes to reloading for 223. He's going to reload a little bit of 55 grain i reload zero um i just for what i can buy bulk 55 grain for oh okay. it's not worth the time to me okay uh, now long range ammo i can run a hornady 73 grain eld bullet and then load it into cases that i've gone through and prepped during the off season it's build up a five gallon bucket full of it and then have it all there i can load that at enough cost cost savings that it's worthwhile and gotcha. then i can load it for my gun my barrel and then I can even adjust that load throughout the year. Okay. So the beginning of this year, I'm going to have about 500 rounds of it loaded up. After the first few matches, I'm not going to go through and just continue loading it unless the standard deviation, the velocity, and the accuracy are still maintained for it. I can okay. go through and bump that powder charge if I need to. I can drop it down uh, as the barrel kind of settles in. Got it. Now, for 9 mil, it's a little different. It's all about volume. How much can I shoot for the dollar amount I'm willing to spend? Yeah, And so I'll run an automated press. Uh, I'm running Hornady hat bullets in there. And when running those, feeds through nice everything else, but I'm running a more expensive bullet, but I'm able to shoot a lot more than if I were just to go buy that level of accuracy, if you will. Okay, so that was yeah. my mistake. I, I thought that you were loading for the 223 stuff, but this you're doing more. The bulk stuff, you're doing more in the 9mm area. Yeah, the 9mm, I'm doing a lot of precision. Bulk. Yeah reloading and whatnot for the long-range stuff. Well, and you mentioned a more expensive bullet there. So what mm-hmm. are you getting performance-wise out of that more experience, uh, expensive bullet versus maybe another one that would be commonly used? So a little difference between the 223 and the 9. So for the 9, the reason why I like that is it's a brass 
enclosed base. So it's a jacketed hollow point. It's um, it's going to be constructed similar to what you would see like a, a match tip for a rifle. Okay. So if I'm running my pistol comped, I'm not going to lead that comp up and build up things that have to be cleaned out of it. Okay. I can go mm-hmm. shoot eight, 10,000 rounds, look at it and go, it's good. Wipe it a little bit with a cloth and I'm fine. So not necessarily like an accuracy thing, but more of like a functionality thing of the firearm itself? It's inherently going to be more accurate because I'm building it, it for that gun. Okay. Uh, but I can go through oh, right. and run several different types of bullets and eventually find a load for all of them that's going to be acceptable. Okay. But I can take that one, not build up lead in the comp. It can be more consistent, which is going to lead to more accuracy. And then I'm also going to use a, a, a powder that a lot of places may not go with. You know, I've used a powder like N320 in the past or CFE that are maybe a little more expensive. Mm-hmm. And depending upon which purpose I'm looking for, iron sights or for comp, I'm going to run a faster or slower powder that's going to either give me more gas or maybe more of a slow push for an, for an iron sight barrel. I have a, kind of the, the thought process of like the rifle reloading versus pistol reloading of like if I'm going to reload for pistol, I am reloading and I do quite a bit in typically somewhere around 30,000 rounds a year that I will run through my presses. That's several to many. I've done more. Yes. But it is, it's a good number, right? And it's... <laughs> it's pretty good, right? <laughs> it's pretty good, right? <laughs> I'm reloading pistol because a lot of the time you can't necessarily buy that load. Yeah. Unless you're having like a, a like Atlanta Arms or something load it for you. So I'm loading for the performance aspect, which is usually slower velocity, powders that are cleaner, and to shoot the bullet that you want to shoot. Whereas with rifle... This isn't like... Because for those listening and hearing slower velocity, that's almost like, why the heck would you ever want to go for that? But we're talking about competition, pistol. You're not trying to put a threat down. You're trying to put holes in cardboard, usually, or... That, and you got to knock steel down or whatever it may be. The the bullet I'm using is actually because Ruben and I had a conversation about what bullet weight are you going to run? What bullet's going to be the best one for your pistol and all of that? And because my first venture into shooting open, well, I'm like, well, I just run the same stuff, right? Well, not if you want it to really work well. Hmm. And so a different goal in that aspect. So if I'm shooting USPSA, I have to make major power factor if I'm shooting open. Otherwise, you get dinged on points. On three gun, I don't have to make a power factor, but if there's a piece of steel out there and I don't knock it over, depending upon the match rules... They may walk over with their pistol and shoot it, and it falls over. I have to eat that penalty. So I want it to be hot enough to make sure it does all of that, but I also don't want to go through and run some hot defense-type ammo yeah. that's going to have more recoil than what I want to deal with. Right. Yeah. Just more kind of finding control. that balance yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, and that hat bullet, too, that myself, you, Travis, um, a lot of guys here, Adam, Kellen, we're all shooting in – the 2011 platform is a 356 diameter bullet instead of a 325 or 355. So it's just ever so slightly larger diameter, creates a little bit better seal in the barrel. Hmm. Um, typically, when we're running uh, like a higher quality gun, the barrel diameter tolerances are kept a little tighter. So running a bullet that creates a better seal allows more of that gas that's following the bullet out to either actuate a comp. Well, really, that's the the main thing is you want enough, enough gas behind that to actuate the comp so that your barrel stays flat. You don't have a lot of muzzle rise. You actually need. How do you know when you are actuating a comp? Usually, I see most people do they just stick a comp on their gun, and just start shooting, and they just assume it's so working. So the pressures that at least that's what I do. I just throw it on there and assume so it works. There's, there's definitely some difference between major and minor when you're trying to achieve that. 
So the thing that I'm looking for, if I'm going to do a minor load, it might be anywhere from 145 power factor to 155. And, Can you explain uh, power factor? I'm sorry to So power what factor kind of from, from the USPSA guys, take the bullet weight times yeah. the velocity and you get a number oh, divided okay. by 1,000. So if I have, to make things simple, if I were using a, a 40 caliber and I had a 165 grain bullet going 1,000 feet per second, yeah. that's a power factor of 165 because it'd be 165,000 divided by 1,000. Okay, yeah. From there, I can go through and say, okay, major power factor is 165 and above. For my open gun, when I run it in USPSA, I've got a big three-port comp to work more gas because I'm going to push it even harder. On that one, I'm running like 172, 175. I'm, I'm well over that. Hmm. Uh, but that's what works the comp well enough to where that dot sits, fires, and sits right back where it was. Yeah. So it's not like I pull the trigger, the dot disappears, I find it again. No, I want it right back where it was. I want the gun to sit almost still, if hmm. possible. On the minor side, I have a barrel with a, a little half-inch single-port comp on the end. And so with minor, I don't have to push nearly as hard. 135, it sits perfectly still. Boom, done. Oh, okay. Can so, you can you go over like even major versus minor and where that comes into play? So for USPSA and any of them that are going to do what's called a hit factor scoring, you're going to have your points per second is how it breaks down. So if you have your scoring zones on a paper target, you have alpha, Charlie, and delta now, which they've got rid of the, the B zone, uh, you're going to have a certain number of points per zone. And then depending upon your power factor, if you don't hit the A in the middle, Charlie may go down, was it one point or three points? One point or yeah. Yeah. So yeah, then you go to a major, delta. Three for minor. Okay. Yeah. So you, you go to a delta, and all of a sudden you're going like, okay, if you're shooting major, eh, it hurts a little on the points. But if you're shooting minor, you might as well have missed. You get like one point because when of you're five. Sh- when you're shooting minor, in theory, you're shooting a gun that's not as bucky. Correct. So they say like, well, if you shot out to delta, then you, it's really on you. It's not necessarily because you're yeah. shooting this powerful. Yeah. And, okay. Right. When I took a, a couple of pistol classes, the guys I took them from were former Army Marksmanship Unit, and we're going through, you know, they're trying to change the training over to help me for three gun, but they're going through, and every time you shoot a Delta, and they are Delta, you go through and be like, oh, he's got an Alpha and a Lucky Miss, a Lucky Miss. And <laughs> they, they pounded into your head, hey, that was lucky. You missed the target. Yeah. So now if I'm shooting steel, most of the time I'm shooting a, an AC zone steel. The D zone is literally cut off the target. Oh, I don't okay. want to train on any target that gotcha. has a D zone attached because if I get used to ha- accepting that as being a hit, it's not acceptable because if I can bring that accuracy in, then I go to a match where that's hanging out there, I can be lucky all day long. That would have been a miss on my range. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's a good tip. Yeah, that is. Now, comps on pistols, how does that how does that work? Is it the same exact way that a regular rifle comp works? And how are you how are you tuning your load to it? It's kind of the same thing with the dot movement, but I can go through and change the powder. Sometimes yeah. a faster burning powder, sometimes a slower. Um, I went from N320, which is a very expensive powder to run, and I was using heavier bullets. Well, there's not a lot of gas. It's quick burning powder, the bullet's gone, and very little gas comes out the end of the muzzle. Okay. I switch over to CFE and then a lighter bullet, and with that, all of a sudden, now I have a slower burning powder. Still relatively fast compared to a rifle powder, but it's slow enough that... I'm building velocity for the full length of the barrel, and at the end, I've got a lot of gas pushing through the comp. Hmm. And if you take any slow-mo video of it, you're going to see gas physically working. Gotcha. Interesting. So, like, in, the, in I guess, the, the, the original example, you're not, I guess, fully, did you say actuating the comp? or it, Depending upon if you've got something that's not 
bringing enough gas, the comp's just an accessory sitting there. Gotcha. It's really pretty. It looks nice. You know, they the, the do pr- look cool. Oh yeah, I mean, love guy, a lot of guys love them on the Gucci a, box, right? Yeah, there's a lot of conversation in that in the concealed carry world and just the regular everyday plinker world about should you even put a comp on like your Glock yeah. 17 or your Glock 19? And um, the kind of the reality is, I think, is that a lot of NATO ammo is pretty hot. Yeah. Um, if you shoot like 124 grain white box NATO spec ammo that these guys are running. It's it's really hot stuff. It's like probably one sixty five, one fifty five to one sixty five power factor. Okay. Versus probably about a one forty five power factor, one forty power factor when you go and buy a box of, you know, off the shelf American Eagle. Yeah. And, and you then, would think that then I guess intuitively or or maybe it's not in, I don't know. I'm thinking, oh, hotter. Yeah, I should put a comp on there, but it sounds like it actually isn't really even utilizing it, the comp because it it's can be burning. Can be okay. Yeah. It can be, yeah. So the you'll you'll see all kinds of guys saying like, oh, I shot a comp and it doesn't even work. Well, like it's doing something. Like you might just not be able to notice it, right? But I think that when you are tuning your load and using the right powders and the right bullet, then you can actually a lot of it's trial and trial and error, right? You load a bunch at this powder charge, a bunch at this powder charge, go out to the range and see which one feels like your sights are lifting the least hmm. or mm-hmm. the dots staying flatter on the target, you're you're able to pick which load is best yeah. to. What kind what kind of not to make this a comp podcast, but what kind of <laughs> I guess um like length are you adding or or not adding to the pistol? Like well, let's say let's a guy goes, Oh I wanna I wanna have a, my optimal concealed carry. And I want to make sure that I'm putting rounds on target when I need to. If the situation arises, I'm going to put a comp on my pistol. Or maybe they shouldn't because of that. I don't know. Well, for concealed carry, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to throw on a two and a half, three inch comp for concealed carry. I mean, at that point, the yeah. gun's getting so ungangly. You're going like, you might as well just carry a, a 2011 open gun. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it also depends upon what you're going to be pushing as far as ammo. <laughs> because like my particular gun has the capability that I can go through and put in an iron sight barrel and shoot that with no comp at all, whether I've got a dot on or I've got iron sights. I can throw on a single port comp that works well with minor ammo. I can put on a large three port comp and that three port comp will not run with minor ammo. It's not meant for it. It was never intended. So you have to run something hotter just to get the gun to function. I think Mm. it's important too, to note that if we were talking about USPSA open guns specifically, you're required to shoot major like you're going to want to shoot major to be competitive so because of that you're going to have to meet that major power factor number so the the comp is not something that's required but it helps you yeah it's helping you deliver those points per second that gun would be brutal without a comp right shooting major with either nine or 38 super yeah plus p yeah (laughs) mark i watched you with a glock 19 you you handled it pretty well un unbraked yeah, but maybe better with a comp. That was my question. I don't know. I think you're just fine, personally. Thanks, Jim. You don't like, sell yourself you like short. Me, you like me the way I am. Don't sell yourself that feels short. Good. You were saying even you change stuff up when you're using a red dot or you're using iron sights? Yeah, because I want a, uh, a different recoil profile, if that makes sense. And then also, if you, if you go through and you take the weight of the gun. So I typically okay. carry a Glock each day. When I carry a Glock, I'm going to go through its polymer frame, its lighter weight, I carry 147 grain ammo that's in it. I want it to be a soft push when I'm shooting it, and I can shoot it very comfortably. I go over to my 2011, and it's a steel grip, steel frame, steel slide. It's a heavy gun. It's, it's 50 ounces. 
in comparison. Oh, like, sure. Mm-hmm. Idea. Uh, I think something Dave, that I think Dave's mountain rifle is about 50 ounces. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, yeah, I, they're, with they're scope and suppressor and Maybe bipod. a little bit under that, actually. Yeah. Really. yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. There are legitimately probably rifles out there that weigh less than my pistol. No, I was <laughs> being serious. Yeah. Well, no, I, I would imagine some of the ones I've seen here. Right. The one thing that I've noticed has been that um, I can go through and run a lighter weight bullet with the 2011 and get a better feel out of it. And then if I'm going to run a comp, I can run an even lighter weight bullet than that if I want. Hmm. Uh, the weight of the gun is going to allow me to have a little more freedom as far as what I'm going to use as projectiles for the feel that I want. Yeah. And when, when he says feel, like a lighter bullet is going to accelerate faster. Okay. So that's where you get that snappy feel. So oh, okay. you shoot 95s or 115s or 124s, you're going to be more on the snappy feel if right. you're right because that bullet's accelerating faster mm-hmm. shooting 147s 135s 165s 155s you're going to get a slower push because the bullet is physically accelerating slower okay 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 where does the irons and the red dot thing come into play i want more of a push with irons and then i'd like a little bit more of a snap with the red dot really uh, but what i've also noticed is that grip strength will come into play and then gun weight so I'm actually running pretty much all 115 grain bullets now. And mm-hmm. if I'm shooting all minor, I'll run the same load because that gun weighs 50 ounces. Mm-hmm. I put it in my Glock and it's awful. It's absolutely horrible. I hate shooting it. Can you go into the why as far as the, I guess, kind of the different maybe sight pictures that you're looking for with irons versus a red dot and kind of where that snappiness comes into play? You have a couple of things. You have what you're focusing on. So if I, were, if I were shooting a target on this wall and I'm shooting with irons, depending upon how precise I want to be, I have to focus a certain amount on the front sight. Mm-hmm. If I'm focusing at this wall and I'm shooting a red dot, I focus on the target and the red dot's there. Yeah. And, and the guys who usually have an issue shooting a red dot on a pistol, and we were playing at the range yesterday, and you know, there's a bunch of Gen 5 Glocks, and they've got Venoms and Vipers on them. like, okay, are you coming up and then trying to find the dot? If you close your eyes and bring it up, it's there. Right. Quit, quit thinking about the dot. Quit looking for the dot. The more you stare at the dot, the, the slower you get at Exactly. So that, that comes into play in that because if I have to find that front sight and focus on it, I have to find it again and recoil. So the 2011s yeah. that I've run have either been an island barrel or a, uh, a sight block barrel. When I pull the trigger, the rear of the slide moves, but that front sight stays at the end of the barrel. Oh, yeah. Those are so pretty fancy. I can try to keep my eye on it as much as possible if I have to focus on that sight. And even okay. shooting, like I shot production for a long time where you're trying to still maintain minimum power factor, which is 125. So you're loading like 135s or 147s, and you're loading them pretty soft, but they're still, it's a heavy bullet going slower. So you're getting, uh, that softer recoil feel, but you're still getting that power factor that you need. Uh, you want that slide to just really like cycle nice and slow so you can pick up your front sight every time versus shooting a dot. You don't want the dot to go away. So you want the gun to get through its recoil cycle okay. quicker mm-hmm. so that you don't have to reacquire that dot every time. Like your perception is almost like that it stayed put. Yep. And so the one of the reasons why you would go and put a dot, is it, they call it like a Roland special. Is that what the, yeah, the Glock the, 19 with the Ronin special is? Yeah, it's like a Glock 19 with a comp. It's a, a Texas right. weapons, Texas weapons specialties comp on it. I think I might have quoted that wrong. And then a red dot on it. So it's like overall, it's about the length of a Glock 34, but it's a Glock 19 with a comp. And so one of the reasons why you would throw a comp on that setup is because you're going to run hotter defense ammo 
and, and the Surefire X300, which is what some dudes started running overseas, and it worked really well, and that's kind of like a fad now in the pistol mm. shooting world. Okay. Sp- specifically kind of defensive pistol shooting world. So kind of like we were saying, a lot of times red dots on pistols historically have been in a competition setting where they're running a hotter ammo, and they're able to get that dot back on target real quick. Well, now you throw that dot on a Glock because it's a superior sighting system to irons in a lot of cases in terms of precision and speed. Now you have this Glock that's got that same, that slower cycling, uh, sorry, quicker cycling, but you're running kind of the wrong ammo through it in the same, like the, the way that a dot was intended to be used in the competition setting, typically on like a fixed mount on a, on a 2011 or a 1911. And now you're kind of putting all this stuff together on a gun that it was never intended to be used on. That's why guys are putting comps on that to keep that that sight because the sight okay. is on the slide, right? Right. So yeah. you're losing that dot every time, and it's different than oh, okay. than a, what a lot of guys are used to. Is the sight on the slide in your 2011 that you're talking about, or no, is it on actually, a fixed so mount on the above fixed the slide? Yeah. So the, the barrels on my 2011 are uh, monolithic. It's a single barrel, either comp, sight block, whatever it may be. Yeah. The front sight's going to stay out there no matter what. And and one of the things, kind of like Ruben touched on with the difficulty with some people shooting you know, maybe a Glock that they've thrown a dot on. If we think about how a dot is, most of the micro dots are going to be on there fairly small, and they're going to have a hood on top, and it's going to have a certain thickness. If you could imagine that as that gun lifts, that dot's going to disappear behind the top of that hood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in iron sights, it doesn't disappear. The front sight lifts, and the front sight comes back. Yeah. Well, the dot disappears, then you hope the dot reappears, right? Uh, well, if you were able to go through and put a comp on there, that dot no longer lifts out of the window. So if oh, you're able to keep gotcha. your eyes on that dot, things change pretty dramatically versus like I can watch front sight lift, the front sight drops back down. Okay. Game on. I'm still there. This is all stuff that like I mean, you talk about you talk about athletes and they see the game slower. You talk about experienced shooters and they just see the process of a shot happening way slower. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I'm not gonna pretend to be the most pro shooter here. And so when I go and I shoot, usually it's kinda, you know, all right, got the sight on the on the target. Boom! Stuff happens, and then you're just back yeah. to. It's, yeah. One once thing you actually that, start being able to break down the entire shot after after you pull the trigger. That's Scott and I were talking one time about that and suppressors in particular. And one of the reasons I love shooting with suppressors is because, especially for new shooters, you're taking them through this process that's fairly foreign, right? And a lot of times we're demoing optics, so we're showing them the optics capability and how it works on specific platforms. And so I always, I kind of liken it to you're explaining somebody to someone how to do something and then an explosion goes off immediately after they do it. And so I think the use of suppressors and, and shooting, um, that's probably one reason why a lot of people start shooting 22s or fairly low noise, low recoil rounds. Totally. It's, it allows you to kind of, see the process without like trying something you've never done before and being expected to pay attention while there's a bomb going off in front of you. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that I think is one of those things that over time you kind of start to, I'll always double plug when I'm shooting in a match, like shoved in as far as they can go. So I can't hear people talking and then muffs on the outside so that I can't hear anything. And then the noise of the gun is mitigated too. But like I'm watching you, know, you start out and you're watching the shots and then all of a sudden sure. a couple of years later you're watching your charging handle reciprocate while you're shooting and it's like it's happening in slow motion. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. That's so, when you know you've hit the next 
level of shooting. So we were we've been Jerry talking Mitchell about like actually hears yeah. the primer pop and then the powder start to fizzle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure with those glasses he actually sees into the future and knows what's going to happen before it happens. That's Jerry, what those are for Jerry <laughs> Mitchell. Like what he, what you don't realize is that when Jerry Mitchell is shooting, you're actually seeing the past. And while he's shooting, <laughs> he can leave his gun floating there and go around and mess with you while you're standing there still in slow mo. <laughs> no, the point I was going to make is uh, with Ruben talking about how things kind of go in slow motion in you too, is when we're reloading. So I don't shoot dots. So I'm you know, kind of quiet. I shoot iron sights. Every mm-hmm. once in a while I'll shoot a dot just to play around and, and slum it a little bit. But um, <laughs> 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 I prefer to shoot irons. It's, it's just what I like. It's what, sure, I've, sure. what I've came up through the ranks on. But uh, so when I'm working up a pistol load, I will load up. I'll, okay, here's probably what I think might cycle the gun. And then I'll work up two tenths of a, of a grain all the way up until my max powder charge. So I might have, you know, 10 little bags or 15 little bags with 20 rounds each and I'm all labeled. Mm-hmm. And I go to the range and I actually watch what my front side is doing from shot to shot. Yeah. So I can, I can find the ammo that groups the best, the combination of, of, of the best grouping ammo and the most manageable recoil. Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. And as so, we noted in previous podcasts, a grain is not the same as a kernel. So you're no. not moving up two tenths of a kernel. That would be impressive. Yeah, that would be impressive. Also, Ian extremely tedious. Yes. Ian does that, but that's okay because Ian, he's, he's Ian. He's on a whole other world of yep. brain power. I know when uh, Jim and I were reloading, Ian's it was impressive. like it was in slow motion. Uh, Mostly because like, it was really slow. <laughs> it was slow, and I kept thinking, God, is it over yet? <laughs> <laughs> I, know, uh, I just, I just, it was an entirely awesome cool process i think it's something that if you really feel as though you're you're into shooting and you want to shoot a lot it's something you should try i think oh there's even gosh, if yes. even if you yeah. do it on you Absolutely. go over to somebody who has the equipment and you can just try it with them and then shoot some of the loads that you made it's something you should try because i don't know it just opens your eyes that much more to what's happening when yeah. you it really trigger, does you know? it really I, does i know just going through that process as an exercise and chatting with guys like you like throughout that process and even like yeah. what we're talking about right now like I said my my understanding like you actually understand what's yeah, you're going on you're so much on. more conscious of what's going it's like when you change your own oil sorry to bring up the car reference but it's like when you change your own oil you're like, oh my gosh it's exactly like that's how that it works well, and not only that but you kind of take pride in it too yeah yeah you know yeah. you feel good you're like i manufactured this ammunition myself yeah. at my home and it shoots don't better than that, what I can buy. I don't feel store. that pride when I get a squib, but Ooh. yeah, well, <laughs> that's a little gut wrenching. Yeah. One thing I do, I do feel about the rifle versus pistol reloading, something that I've done about 10 years and I'm by no means am I the, like an expert on it. I'm, and I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough to not blow myself up. So Two different things. Fingers. At least thus fingers far. Crossed. Yeah, right. Yep. Got all, the all, of, all ten of them crossed. All nine of them yeah. crossed. Yeah. There are the, uh, 30 fingers across the table from us. <laughs> the pistol reloading to me... Now, rifle reloading is... You see results. You you can see the uh, a group tighten up. You can see you know the rifle shoots more accurately or whatever. You don't feel a whole lot of difference, at least in my opinion, unless you're loading like some soft softer rounds for a low recoil, like mm-hmm. purpose of low recoil. Pistol is something that you start playing with powder charges to figure out what is going to be the best for your gun. And like like Garrett said, I'll go to the range with 10 different bags of ammo. One of them is just like amazing to shoot. And like you feel the difference. It's like softer. The recoil impulse is better. The, you know, your sights come back to where they should be. 
where the other one is just like, oh, I don't, I don't want that one. Like that's out, you know? And so you see yeah. this big difference, right? And it's really easy to see compared to shooting rifle where it's like, it's basically an accuracy test. Admittedly, gotcha. this is kind of surprising for me to hear because I always almost just kind of looked at pistol ammo Similar to how I used to look at shotgun ammo, where awesome. I was like, well, as long as you get the numbers right, it's all basically the same stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know? And then now hearing it, but it makes so much sense because we've we've done now a little training with pistols, and you see how everything with pistols is is smaller. And and when I when I say that, obviously the firearm in comparison to a rifle, most rifles, is smaller. But every little motion that you do, every little tweak you have to make, and every little thing you have to do to make it work well is smaller. At least it feels smaller. And so these small changes to the ammo, it makes sense. I mean, it's something that you're holding out here. It's, it doesn't brace up against your shoulder, you know, none of the other stuff. So well, these small got, differences. Um, you've got less points of contact with a pistol first off. Yeah. You know, it's, it's literally hand in hand and it's out here. You're not going to set it against your shoulder or put your face on the slide or anything yeah. like that. So it, it's inherently going to be different than a long gun. The other thing that I kind of notice is, let's say if I'm going to load CFE or whatever powder, I'm going to start at five grains and I'm going to go to six and a half. That's a 1.5 grain difference. And in there I'm doing 0.2. And I'm really glad to hear you guys both use the little baggies because I feel like a drug dealer every time I go to the public range, <laughs> pay my three bucks and sit down and start pulling out dime bags, each one of them with a little bit of ammo in it. But do you and bring any ammo with you? Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I set the chrono up, everything else, people are looking All at them. Number sudden, one, no, these kids start gathering around with yeah. the money. And I... <laughs> but none of, these, none of these people, half of them don't know what a chronograph is, and you have to explain it to them like this is records of velocity as I shoot through it. And then they want to know why, because a lot of people who reload will go reload because it functions the gun and it's fun to shoot. That's great. Now, if I'm playing multiple games, I have to know what that makes on the chronograph. Mm-hmm. And I may have a goal. It has to be above this. And I've done the same thing Ruben's done where you've got 10 baggies sitting across there. These over here won't even cycle the gun. Hmm. These over here feel horrible. And in the middle are the ones that are acceptable, but that one feels perfect. That's the one that's going to be run through the gun. And those are the ones that are for sale? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not without that special well, license. I asked yeah. Mark to get the for chronograph out of my truck one time, and yeah. he, he came back and said he couldn't find the chronic. Yeah. <laughs> right. And chance, you just said for his gun, chances are if I then took your best thing and threw it in my gun, it may not work that way. It may even be in the same gun. So I may hand you my gun and you shoot and you're like, eh, it's okay. Oh, interesting. Oh, just because so maybe I hold it different. It, you hold it a little build. bit different. You grip strength differences, everything else. You know, if you take somebody who goes through and grew up on a farm hauling hay, everything else, and they, you know, feel like they have to crush the grip on their pistol, then that gun shoots dramatically different for them. Yeah, Take right. somebody else who goes through and they grew up in suburban area and they played football in high school and did other things and they didn't maybe get over the top in that area. No, that doesn't feel the same for them. Yeah. Because I've had people hand me their pistol and go like, ah, this one shoots great. And I'm going, uh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Then I hand them my gun that I think feels amazing. And they're going like, well, the trigger's okay. And you're like, well, what's wrong with it? Well, it kicks too much. Well, that's that's where like just the small differences can make Small things can make big differences. Because does that same thing happen in rifles? Where you you hand, maybe you yeah. get your rifle shooting amazing, you hand it to somebody else, they're like, meh. Yeah, because I, I know does. Garrett and I okay. had a, a conversation about this recently. He gets behind my rifle when he came out, and he shot it, and he's like, that thing didn't move. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. Well, I went back from using titanium and lightweight carriers and went to a full-weight bolt carrier. But everything's tuned to that's have heresy. that full-weight 
yeah, exactly. It's a complete opposite of what you should do in three gun. Everything should be super light inside, super light everything. I wanted a heavier rifle. I wanted a full weight bolt carrier, full weight buffer system, full weight spring, and I'm going to tune it for that. When you shoot it, it doesn't move. Hmm. And now his gun cycles faster. Did. 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 So <laughs> I used to always build out, you know, traditional guns, full mass carrier, uh, heavy buffer, all that stuff. And then I I really got serious in a three gun and started going with reduced power buffer springs and the low mass carriers. And I wanted the gun to cycle fast. I was having a problem with outrunning my gun. I could pull the trigger a little bit faster. Than the I was going to say, cycle. so you want it cycling okay. fast, so you've got so, another cartridge so that that I ready don't to end go up, fast. So that I don't end up with a dead trigger in the middle of a paper array. Okay, you know? that's fair. So then a couple of weeks ago, I shot Dylan's rifle, and I really liked the way it, it handled. So I went out and took two buffer systems, a full mass or a full full power and then a reduced power, uh, and then a full mass carrier and a, and a reduced mass carrier. And I sat there on the bench and shot both back-to-back over and over and over again. And right now in my gun is my full mass carrier with my full power buffer system. Interesting. It just Wow, what a circle it, of life. Right. And, and I didn't notice any any change in accuracy because they have the same bolts in them. But I did notice that when I was shooting especially slow fire, you know, shooting groups, the, the, they were grouping the same, but the gun would jump off target. You know, at 50 yards, the gun would jump off of my point of aim with my low mass carrier about two to three inches you know i'd have a little but with the full mass it was about an inch and it would just settle right back down Hmm. i did notice i could feel the gun cycling a little slower Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's going to be enough and if it really is a problem i'll just open my gas up a little bit and you know okay which it is kind of for what we've typically done is heresy because when when the the base stages and the bay matches were the big 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 thing i wanted the shortest lightest rifle possible cycle that thing as fast as possible. It was all about splits and transitions and movement and everything else. Now, mm-hmm. Garrett and I just shoot a lot of matches. Machine. Yeah, you, you just want to just see a rainbow of brass flying out of it. That sounds Garrett beautiful. I, it, it is actually very beautiful when you get it done right. <laughs> when it doesn't go right, you're, no, 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 and you're pulling on the charging handle trying to figure out what went wrong. But Garrett and I shoot a lot in Midwest down through Texas. So if you go through in the matches in Missouri and Texas and one of there, it's a lot of long range. So my oh, reasoning yeah. for putting the full weight carrier in, and and uh, and Ruben knows Matt, and Matt went through some testing and some issues where he had a super light buffer system, and all of a sudden his nice tight grouping barrel just went, started opening up to two and three inch groups. So I'm like, okay, my rifle that I built for this year, I went over the top in regards to accuracy. That's my only concern. I can make the gun work otherwise. I can use a good comp. I can I can work around that, but it will be the most accurate gun that I ever shot. I mean, if I'm putting the 1 to 10 on it, everything else going through all of that, it will be as accurate as I can get. Mm-hmm. So at that point, if his research went through, super, super lightweight was opening up erratically, and so velocities were changing and accuracy was opening up, okay, well, I'm going to go the opposite, full weight everything. And then it's literally the best shooting 223 I've ever shot. Mm-hmm. And so I can deal with the other things being a little slower on the cycle and everything else, because typically, and you know, like Garrett and I talked about this on the way up here, cycling in a match versus cycling in practice are different. I can outrun my Benelli, I can outrun my AR, and I've never managed to outrun my pistol, but I can physically run it fast enough to cause a malfunction. In a match, I've never had it happen. Because if I'm shooting that fast in a match, I'm racking up penalties, and I'm going to lose. And gotcha. you don't win matches because your splits on paper are fast. No. You win matches because you didn't waste 90 seconds on two long-range targets. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So it's kind of that uh, the old juice versus the squeeze. 
Is it worth mm-hmm. it? Okay, yeah. And mm-hmm. and for me, the accuracy was worth it. Yeah. Now, Ruben picks up my rifle yesterday, and he goes, this is way too heavy. I'm like, no, 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 that's exactly what I wanted. Like, that's the profile of what it <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, but I'm heavier, so <laughs> I need the rifle to be lighter. It's a balancing act. Is there, like, an overall combined weight? Yeah, you step you on the scale before you get that, on the stage. Okay. Yeah. Ruben, so I'm, I'm not really at that I'm not, line. I'm not really buying that, though, because we haven't talked about this in a while, but Ruben's actually lifted me into the air from a, just a standing, like, static position, so I don't think you really need, like, additional arm strength right. to hold up the rifle. Ruben's also deceivingly fast. Oh, yeah. I'm quick. I'm not fast. We buzzed all his hair off, yeah, so he's more streamlined great. now. Yeah, exactly. Like a swimmer. It is. I've been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Garrett, uh, Dylan we'll t- was saying... We'll take this offline. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. what's I wrong just... with that. In other news, Dylan was saying you reload some of your ammo for your rifle. Right. Rube, do you do that too? You reload 223? The only I'm trying to think who in front of me here reloads two two three because I'm yeah, in the I same mean, boat I do. as Dylan. What you were saying earlier, where I'm kind of thinking to myself, that's a lot well, of two like, two like three to load. Juice versus the squeeze for me, fifty five yeah. grain. It's not worth it. I mean, I Are have you, everything to do it. Yeah, I've I've loaded tens of thousands of rounds of two two three. Right now, we're at a point where there isn't a huge rush on ammo. But when I started competitive shooting, oh yeah, I would literally have to count my ammo to see if I had enough ammo to shoot the match. And it was not because I was in college and didn't have any money. It was because there was a period of time from 2008 on oh, yeah, where okay. if I could find 40 rounds of 223 at my local sporting goods retailer, I get to shoot the match this Saturday. Wow. Yeah. And so now looking at like, okay, most people don't pick up their brass, so I can go to that same club where I shoot and pick up a bunch of brass I can buy a bunch of projectiles, powder, put it together because there's a much smaller subset of people that reload. And so the rush on ammo really affected anybody who didn't reload. The rush on reloading components took a little longer for that to happen Mm -hmm. because even during that period of time, a lot of people picked up reloading because they couldn't get ammo. So that's that's how we got started in it. Is that why you do it, Garrett? I do it because it's less expensive, um, especially, you know, if you – Get in with some companies, you know, you know some people. You, you get some, you can get your components maybe for a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, I also teach a lot of rifle classes, and my students never want their brass, so I get to take that home. So that helps. Sure. A okay. Lot. Heck, they That's even fair. pick it up for me, which is awesome. No, no, they clean the range. They clean the range. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, Do they tumble it for you too? No, they... no, 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 no. <laughs> no. And I, actually, I always tell them, I'm like, here's now all for these this buckets part of the of, class. No, yeah. I was, every every student, I'm like. Here's all this brass. If you guys want it, take it. And I've had people take the entire five gallon bucket, and that's great. Sweet. But when they don't, you know, I take it home. Um, that so that that helps a lot. I've got my reloading set up pretty efficient, you know, so I can load rifle pretty quick. For me, I, you know, I've heard a lot about, you know, like, like Ruben said, you you don't notice the performance as much. But I have messed around with powder charges and bullet weights, and I can get some 223 that feels like a 22, and I can hose paper a little faster. Mm, now, like okay. I said, you're not going to win a match on your split times by any means, but if I can make up a half a second per stage, you know, on a, on a paper array, yeah, you know, there, over the course of eight stages, that'll make, that makes up four seconds. There is something to be said, too, yeah. about the actual time it takes to reload, because yeah. like 9mm, I can take my brass. Yeah, I've even had a point where i don't even clean it like i can run a couple of firings between full deep clean of the oh, brass wow. hmm. um, i'll throw it in the tumbler for an hour but like i don't have to do a full cycle or i don't, I don't have to do stainless steel tumbling with pistol deep prime size throw some powder in it throw a bullet in it good to go yeah straight wall it, case it takes it takes uh 
even on a, a like a Dillon five fifty, which you have to manually put the bullet in and the new case in and cycle it to the next station all manually, I can still reload five hundred rounds an hour with z- virtually zero brass prep. So that rounds per time, I guess your cost and your your time uh, currency yeah. is really low on nine millimeter for me or for pistol for me. Two twenty three, depending on where you get your brass and what kind of brass it is. If it's mil spec crimped, now you have to swage that brass. Okay, so if you want to spend a lot of money and get a ten fifty that has a swaging die in it, you can do that. But typically, you're going to go through all your brass. You've got to make sure that with rifle brass, it's really important to make sure the brass isn't stretching out and your the neck isn't getting too long. So depending on how many firings it has on it. You may have to swage it. You may have to size and deprime, and go back, measure your case over or your case length, run it on a case trimmer, chamfer deburr, then then you can reload it. <laughs> so, reloading rifle, mm. I I find that it's incredibly time consuming, and I'm not gonna lie, like my time is worth money too. You have kids, family, like yep. uh, yard work, housework, work work, and it's like. I don't find that right now with the price that I can buy 223 at. Yeah. I don't find that it's worth my, well, and, my time right now. And 223 you're trying to load up a lot, you know. Yeah. The guy who's going hunting, trying to reload his hunting ammo. Yeah. Needs to load up enough to get zeroed in, sighted in, yep. shoot a few times at the range and then go on the hunt, right? Not nearly 500 rounds. Well, and kind of like piggyback on what he's saying, I can go through grab my 1050 turn it on and it's doing swaging everything else so even even if my nine mil brass rolls through and i happen to get that one rare piece of brass that's nine mil that happens to be a crimped primer which for the guy on a 550 is going to go through and be trying to get that out and then trying to slam that cci primer in or whatever uh, and it's not going well looks horrible needs to throw the whole thing away my 1050 will do that for me but it's 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 done it's there it's it's finished Mm-hmm. For two two three for me because I'm not loading fifty five grain because again for me it's not worth it at this time and I have a bunch of forty fifty fifty fives and sixty two grains that I loaded and load data on all of it in case necessity requires it in the future right the uh, but for the seventy three grain loads that that I'm going to go through and do I can go through and buy the boxed ammo and it's a dollar and a quarter around but it's really 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 good okay mm-hmm. but I can load that same thing for less than half. And the downturn to that, or downside, is I have to put a lot of time into it. So when Ruben talked about sizing, depriming, and all that, I do that on a single stage. Then it goes over to a, a single kind of, I guess, a stage press that deprime or uh, swages it. So I'm going to swage that primer pocket. Then I'm going to take it over, and I'm going to clean it. And when I get done cleaning it, I'm going to take it to another tool that's like a pencil sharpener. It takes like, how long does it take to get a draw? Like eight months? Yeah, it's crazy so amount it's of time. Drought that goes on a, the full drought or a, yeah, the full the one. drill. Yeah, I've got I've got the I've got the full one that I bought back in like two thousand. Yeah, it was or it was almost a year. It, it was pure necessity at the time because it, I was doing them by hand. So I'm either going to blister my hands up turning this little tool that's two three inches long. Yeah, to chamfer on one side, deburr on the other, set it down, grab another piece of brass. Horrible. Yeah, and this drought will literally trim to length. Yep, chamfer, deburr, all like mm, pencil sharpener done. That sounds efficient. And so, it's well, way better. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you're talking a $500 desk ornament that takes up you know, 16, 18 inches by 10 inches by 10 inches of your desk that you're only using when you prep 
223. So Oh, interesting. So that one's like it's like cartridge you specific. you have but to go this through and get the replacement piece for it that's set to the shoulder. Oh, so yeah. I can't trim any of that until I've sized and deprimed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to go first through do all those steps. Yeah. Then trim to length and yeah and and, and then finally the I can take it home. But it's so important in rifle because you're shooting a cartridge that's running at 50 to 65,000 psi of chamber pressure, right? Okay. Versus a pistol which is significantly lower. So if if my rifle head spacing is set wrong because I uh or if my overall case overall length is wrong because I decided not to trim my cases to length uh or if you have too much neck tension or not enough neck tension like you could blow up a gun. We've seen it yeah. on ranges yeah. where something was wrong with a, a reloaded case and a gun literally blows up. So to me, I look at the, the rifle reloading side of things as like, yeah, if I have the time and, and it's a necessity, I'm going to do it. But for like factoring all costs, it's really hard to justify reloading 55 grain kind of close range, you know, sub 200 yard ammo. I mean, even right. at the point where if I had if I had the money to where I could shoot all of the factory 73 grain ammo that I could get my hands on, I'm not loading any of it. If if I can afford that, but mm-hmm. the amount that I want to shoot necessitates that I reload. Yeah. It's kind of like with pistol ammo. If I could go through and be like, "All right, I, I've got $10,000 cash. I'm going to buy this much pistol ammo, this much 55 grain, and this much 73 grain, and I'm going to sit it there on a pallet at the house. I'm just going to grab a case when I go to the range." Great. That's awesome. But the reality is, you don't have that much cash sitting there, so you're going to go through and you're going to buy this component here. And like I think it was November, I got in three little boxes. They're, you know, they're 8 10 inches tall total. How, I don't know how big are the Hornady hat boxes, like 12 inches by 14 inches, yeah, two inches tall, tall each. They're tiny. They don't look like anything. And I mm-hmm. look like the biggest wimp in the world because I'm almost about to lose the dolly going down the stairs because <laughs> it's that heavy. But you take the bullets in, you set them on the counter, all three boxes, you're like, okay, I've got that. Yeah. Now it's time to go and wait a little while and I'm going to buy primers. Okay, well, I'm going to buy 15,000 primers. Okay, figure out, make that order. Then I'm going to go through and I'm going to order the powder. And then I've got all that sitting there. And then now I can feed the press. Hmm. You know, and so it's just a little bit different. The uh, budget necessitates things. Sure. Costing on pistol, too, is really attractive. Reloading pistol, the cost versus your cost on reloading rifle, I think when you factor everything in, is it's pretty cool. Like you can, depending on what when you buy your bullets or where you're, you know, if you pick up your primers and you don't have to pay hazmat fee to ship them, whatever, Typically, a primer is going to be three cents, right? They're typically around thirty dollars a thousand. So, and if you don't order enough of them, you pay uh, what a thirty dollar hazmat yeah, fee. Yeah, so it bumps it up. But hmm. but primers are going to be three cents, right? Okay. If you buy a pound of tight group, there's seven thousand around seven thousand grains of powder in a pound. So you got seven thousand divided by uh, one of the powder charges I use is three point two. So seven thousand divided by three point two. I can get a lot of rounds. It's like 1,400 to 1,500 rounds a pound. Wow. Okay, so, so an eight-pound right. jug, you got a lot of ammo. That, that $21 bottle of tight group and 1,000 primers, okay, now we're up to 30 bucks. You're around 50 bucks in materials. And now fi- factor in a 7 to 10-cent bullet, okay? So I'm reloading boxes of ammo. If I'm picking up my brass and keeping my brass, I can reload a box of ammo that... The cheapest ammo you're buying at 
a sporting goods retailer for nine millimeters, you know, 50 round box for 10 bucks, 11, yeah. 12 bucks. Okay. I'm reloading a round that is catered and built for my pistol, for my type of shooting, that has a better recoil impulse than factory ammo for less than half the cost of factory ammo. That's impressive. So take it to the next step. If you go even beyond that, let's say if I'm going to work a comp. Tight group, maybe, what, 3.2 grains. I think one of my powder charges for CFE was like 5.7 for minor and like 7 grains for... For for major, major, yeah. So if I'm going to go through and load those two, I'm still at let's say instead of ten cents, I'm at fifteen. But in order to get that ammo from a company, number one, they may or may not make major in my gun if I'm shooting major. Yeah, you might not even be able to get the ammo. Yeah, and, and then huh. I've I've actually talked to a couple of different companies that you know they go through and say, well, you don't have an ammo sponsor. I'm like, no, I don't. It's, okay, cool. Well, what do you think about doing this? I'm like, well, can you load this? And like, well. I'm like, okay, well, this is what I'm loading. I'm like, and it works great. And I'm, if I'm working a comp, you can't go through and run 125 power factor, 115 grain bullets, and then expect it to work a comp in either a single port or a three port, minor or major. And so you go through and you're like, well, I, I'm not physically able to use it. You a know? lot of ammo companies are, even even the custom reloading shops are going to be, they're going to be a little bit leery of exceeding SAMI pressures yes. and SAMI yeah. dimensions, yeah, well, right? probably rightfully so yeah for, for, very good for reason. legal reasons right so but now and and even like dimensional stuff like loading a long round yeah. so the bullet's seated out farther well now that's not a sammy approved length right because it's not nine nine millimeter for those mm-hmm. maybe not familiar sammy oh i don't acronym. know the acronym yeah, but the ac- it's the it's, it's like our in the u.s it's the governing body that determines uh case dimensions cartridge dimensions and acceptable pressures so that firearm manufacturers know what pressures to build guns to. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's on that's about right. So if a cartridge is not uh SAMI approved or SAM doesn't have a SAMI spec, that's a wildcat cartridge. Okay. Yeah. Well that and if you look a lot of times you'll see nine millimeter and then you'll see plus P. Yeah. This is higher pressure than SAMI, more than likely. This is on the high end or plus P plus, maybe we are definitely over that. Got and it. then if you go through and you start looking at firearms, you're like, okay, well, can I shoot that in that gun? You start opening the manual is absolutely not. Hmm. So I, I have, I have several Glocks. There. Like everybody has a pillowcase of Glocks, right? That shoots competition. <laughs> the we, never, we all started with them and and we carry them and everything else. So I've got Glock 43s that are kind of like the super subcompact, something like that. that the single oh, it's stack a single one? stack. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's it's meant to be small carry gun. It's like a 26 single stack. Yeah. Cut is 26 and, and then and I've half. got. I got 19s and I've got 17s and, and I take the 19s and 17s. Out. I can shoot plus P in them. Mm-hmm. I shot four or five hundred rounds of plus P through a Glock 43, which, by the way, is not a fun experience. But by the time I was done, it wasn't firing. Hmm. So I happen to know dumb. a guy who's a, a Glock rep, and I said, "Hey, what's going on with this? You know, I need to return it. Do I need to do this?" And he's like, "No, no, no. You're shooting plus P. Quit doing that. You're not supposed to in that gun. I'm going to send you this part, this part, this part, this part. Swap them out. It'll be fine." And he was 100 percent correct. I took the gun out, shot it. Shoots great. Shoots great now. So but you said, that, what should I do? And he just said, stop it. Yeah, he said, quit doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that thing like, breaking it. you remember the you instructions idiot, that we stop. send with the gun? And I go, yeah. And he goes, it's kind of like the instructions when you assemble something at home that your wife says, read the instructions first, and you don't, and you break something. Same thing, dummy. And so he, he helped me out, got me, got me all fixed back up and everything else, and the gun runs great, and I carry it today. But I can't shoot plus P in that, which is a much more enjoyable experience not shooting plus P in that gun. 
because it is but tiny. But if you were carrying, it sounds nice like all sorts of pluses. Oomph. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a little oomph to it. Hmm. Interesting. You know when you've pulled the trigger, we'll put it that way. Right. I can imagine. I can imagine with something that small. So the season's coming up now. And uh, because at the time of this recording, I think about the time that it's going to come out, we're almost in spring. It's almost here. And uh, what else are you guys doing? Other than, so, you know, there's the reloading aspect of it. But any other big things that you guys are doing as, as we get into uh, into it? So for me, one one thing I'll do every season is rebarrel rebarrel my rifle. I just oh, I, you rebarrel your rifle every season. Every season, okay. I rebarrel rebarrel. It's hard hard for me to say for some reason. My <laughs> rifle. It's just a, a thing that I do. I want to make sure I, I tackle every season with a fresh barrel, and then I'm going to go out and break it in, group it, find ammo that that it likes, especially for long range. You know, for for close range ammo, I'm not super picky. Um, you know, I just load my own. I load whatever I've got, but. For long-range ammo, I'm going to either load something or find something, uh, a factory ammo that works well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to group it. I'm going to chrono it. I'm going to confirm it. I'm going to have probably a 1,000 rounds on that barrel before I shoot my first match. And so that's wow. something every year that I do is I rebarrel my rifle. Yeah, if you get a 1,000 rounds in your barrel before you even shoot for the first match, I could see why you may need to rebarrel at the end of the season. Right. And then <laughs> and then I'll go through and I'll, I'll, I'll usually make kind of a checklist of all the issues I had in last year and not just with equipment but with myself training issues maybe a lot of mistakes that i made consistently throughout the year and i'm going to practice that stuff in the off season um so last year i was having you know like i was fumbling some quad loads there for a while Mm. so i've been practicing that quite a bit um towards the end of the year my pistol shooting got a little sloppy so i've been shooting you know 500 to a thousand rounds a week the last couple weeks you know just trying to get up to speed and get ready for the season and then uh you know evaluate all my equipment obviously Buy some new stuff. Uh, you know, Dylan and I built new guns for the Vortex Extreme this year. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're going to train with those all year. So, got uh, what, five cases of ammo incoming, a bunch of 140 grain ELDs to run through them. Yep. 65 crude more then? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. So, so, that's most of my preseason prep is, you know, evaluating myself and, and my weaknesses and trying to trying to correct those and then also my equipment. But the, the, the rebuild. Can't say that word. Putting a new barrel in my rifle. There you go. <laughs> right, go really hard for Garrett. I don't know why why that word is kicking my butt. Modern today. problems require modern solutions. <laughs> Find a new word. Put new barrel in gun. <laughs> so, put, so putting a new barrel in my rifle is something that that I always do. All right. And everything else is situational dependent. You know, depending on how my season went last year, especially towards the end of the season. Yeah, I gotta imagine you're keeping a list of stuff you screwed up. I don't. It's long. Like sometimes to, I need a whole uh, notebook. It's it's not any different than you with the car stuff. I mean, like you go out, you come back from a trip, and you automatically have this list of things you need to change. Uh, I mean, like what kind of sucks well. to make those lists, but it you know does. it's good for you. Depends upon how OCD you are. Yeah, I'm oh, probably yeah. the rare one that will sit down, and, and so both of us, most of us know Jake Latola and the spreadsheets, everything else. He's actually made fun of me because I'll make a spreadsheet with a ruler and a piece of paper. Apparently, it's a spreadsheet if you do it on a computer. But I will go through and make that list if I'm working on something or if I'm getting ready to take a trip, if I'm whatever it may be. And then as that list comes through, that's my checklist to check things off as to what I'm taking or doing or prepping, what I'm going to be checking, trying, testing, whatever it is. So I'll do that for if I'm going to, like Garrett talked about, reloading or factory ammo when testing that barrel and getting things ready. I'm going to go through and have that list and go, okay, every line item is going to be filled out for each one. Then from that, I can pick what I want. You, know, you when, make your own. I'm make sorry, my I'm own spreadsheet with a pen you, and a ruler. 
So I, I despite I do, the fact that they just print off Excel those at like what's yeah, that? Just graph graphics. paper. No things that already it's usually, exist. Quite literally, usually a either a piece of paper or I'll go to Microsoft Paint and make the columns I want. Just go to Excel. It's already done. It's already, Excel like, page. You're already, it's already using done. a Microsoft app that comes on your computer. Why not use the one it's that's in there designed somewhere. for... I, I trust you it's in there. Okay. But I can usually have it done in about five minutes. Wow. So we should time. have a race yeah. one of these days. Says the guy who doesn't someone. load rifle because it's not worth his time. Yeah. I can manual spreadsheets. That is a very yeah, good point. <laughs> so I that took all my reloading point. presses home. I can't reload rifle at the office anymore. Oh, okay. I, I, oh, yeah, now, I used to reload your, rifle uh, at the office. chiropractic patients get uncomfortable with uh, So I have an office that is like 2,500 square feet, and I use about, you've been there, what, like 800 maybe? Right. Maybe 1,200. Okay, so maybe 12. So I've got half the office that I don't use for that. So I have a gun room in the office where I've built rifles and I've cleaned rifles and everything you could imagine. Hypothetically. Um, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking. Um, I've opened loading ports <laughs> on shotguns in rooms, hypothetically. And then, you know, I've got a bunch of other rooms. Well, one of the rooms I had, I had, you know, a, a counter built like this all the way along the wall. And it was 1050 and a 550 and stacks of bullets and primers and powders and everything else. And, of course, it's, it's, in a, it's in a locked room with <laughs> blinds closed. And then, you know, hey, lunchtime hits. I take a two-hour lunch. I go in there and I crank out some ammo. And, and like you mentioned with necessity for reloading, that's how I started into reloading. We couldn't find ammo. You're not going to shoot the match. Yeah. So it was make a two-and-a-half-hour drive to a, a bullet manufacturer that's not that far from me, go into their outlet store, buy blims, and hope and pray that they shoot, and then take them home and then, like, have to drive 90 minutes north to the only place that had powder that was repackaging powder in, uh, like, a smaller version of a lunch sack. And then they would staple it shut and write what it was. And you were allowed safe. to buy a single pound. And so that's, like, when we went to practice, it was like we have a pound of rifle powder and we have a pound of pistol powder each. This is what we're loading up. And once the powder's gone, you're done. And so that's I've how had, we had to do things. I, I remember when I have had matches that I couldn't shoot because I didn't have components to reload. Yeah. And you couldn't find ammo. No, there was no, there was no going anywhere. And then when we were loading pistol, we had loads built up for 115s, 124s, I think 130s because it was an oddball bullet, 135s, 147s, 150s, because what can I buy? And that's oh, you, yeah. that's yeah. why Mark shoots 300 Wisdom because nobody ever yeah, bought nobody it. Yeah, nobody ever wanted it. They, uh... They make enough, so it has to be on the shelf, <laughs> and I can always get it. Always one box at a time. I'm going I'm to circle. Times of struggle wind up creating habits for the future, even when the time of struggle is gone. <laughs> I'm circle back here for a second. So you meticulously manage every aspect of your life for efficiency, so you have time left over to hand make spreadsheets for <laughs> yeah what is it what are you trying so to make time left that's over? what you're using the time for what are you yes, trying to make yes. time left over for okay. uh not necessarily time left over but usually it's forgetting something so okay. if for anybody who's shot competition you know the guy who shows up and he's always forgotten his belt if you always forgot his holster forget it if you, had, if, you had, if you had a spreadsheet and, uh, and check boxes on the left side <laughs> you'd never forget pencil? that stuff so but but we've had i've had guys that I are passing through before Hey, I've had a guy pass through Kansas just City. Just throw the gun down range and go pick it up. Yeah. Just Calls me at midnight and says, can yeah. you give me a holster? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, can you give me a holster? I don't have a holster. I'm shooting tomorrow as an RO, and I'm going to be there Saturday and Sunday. He's shooting all day Thursday and Friday. He's got to stop by my was house at 1 a.m. Was this in Tulsa, Oklahoma? No, this was on to the Missouri Because it happened match. in Tulsa, if you remember, and I brought him a holster. 
Same person. <laughs> He's done that twice. That guy needs a spreadsheet. <laughs> All right. Hey, super, super take good 10 guy. Minutes out of your day. Take 10 minutes out of your day and make that guy two spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I made this for you. There's a little heart on it. Uh, my, my prep for competition season is a little bit different. So I have kind of not really changed much gear a whole lot over the years. Last year I made some gear changes because I wanted to shoot some different divisions, but... I've shot the same shotguns and the sh- same rifle barrel profiles and triggers and everything for a long time, so I haven't changed a lot in that regard. Last year, did a lot of testing with the one to ten, so that was a, that was a gear change. But typically, I don't start in January and February and be like, "Oh, what can I build this for this season?" I've never really done that. I've made running changes in the middle of the year, which is probably a pretty bad decision because you're not used to it. But my job here kind of allows me to be on the range a lot and so I get time to practice and time to shoot while we're waiting for stuff to get set up or whatever and so typically my like spool up before the competition season is almost entirely mental and physical like it's getting back on the treadmill it's the I I've always found that for me Dylan and I and you know I've been in about 10 years Dylan's been in it longer than I have I need to like shut off the competition thing in like November and I might shoot a little bit of indoor pistol league, but I typically try and step away, right? Like I step away for a good three or four months every year. Um, like I said, I'll shoot a little bit indoor pistol in the winter, um, some PCC stuff. But I mean, for the most part, I have that getaway of hunting season, some ice fishing stuff. And for me, it's because right about now that March timeframe, I'm starting to miss it. I'm starting to miss the shooting. And so it, it's that, kind of renewed passion every spring to get back into it and that helps you prepare mentally for the season at least that for me that's what works and so right now I'm going back and and reading the books I'm reading you know with winning in mind reading practical shooting reading uh, books on the mental preparation and having that um, mental astuteness and mental strength to push through a match or to push through a, a weekend of shooting a match and that excitement gets me down in the basement digging out all my gear again cleaning up stuff that needs to get cleaned up putting fresh loctite on holster screws stuff like that Hmm. and so that like the gear for me is like typically not really what my spool up is like it's almost all entirely mental getting back like getting excited to be back out on the range i think there's the excitement part there's also the confidence part yeah because so as as somebody who grew up hunting the most exciting half second of your life is right when you're getting ready to pull the trigger on a nice buck or a turkey or whatever, right? And that's kind of the thing that you're really searching for the next time that you're going to go out hunting. You're like, man, I'm like, I'm going to have the chance to get a nice buck. It's going to fill the freezer with venison. But like that last half second is where the heart rate comes up. And I know Ruben and I have had a couple conversations in the past about like getting to the end of the season. You're like, nope, I don't want to go to that match. I'm burnt out. I'm done. Yep. I want to be done right now. It's uh, it's mid November. I'm tired. I've got Thanksgiving coming up. I've got Christmas coming up. I want to spend deer time season. with my family. I got deer season rolling in. So you're, are you going to make the choice to go to opening weekend of deer season and like completely different gun? Maybe a gun I wouldn't shoot in competition. Don't care. I just want something different. Mm-hmm. And then it's like this is a different type of excitement, and I'm actually excited. I'm not burnout. Mm-hmm. And then I take two three months off at times, yeah. and maybe not touch anything until mid February. Well, I mean, at the level that you guys are, I mean, that's a very, like, mentally and physically intense 
thing to like maintain for like that long of a period of time, like yeah. the level that you guys are taking at. You know, what I mean that that is a ton of continuous focus, right? And I can see, man, like you, you do need some time to decompress. And for I think sure. that that break time for me is kind of like Jim, like you was it cross country that you did track track. So if you're preparing for a big race, do you go out the day before and run like the whole? No, that's like you're you prepare before that, mm-hmm. and then the days leading up to that, you're kind of just in your in your rhythm, right? Like right. you're not you're not pushing yourself physically. Same with weightlifting; you're not going to go out and do your max the day before you have a competition. Yeah, right. So for me, that mental build up time before the season, like we're in right now, is I'm starting to pick up my competition guns again. I'm getting stuff all dug out. Took my rifle and my pistol down to the indoor range on Monday of this week. Did a little bit of shooting, and it was like I was reminded of the things that I've built over the years. And, like, it started to come back, and it was like I never left it. I think that anyone who thinks that, like, I'm going to go shoot a match. I need to go burn a 1,000 rounds of ammo today just to get my – no. That's – no, that's not what you need to do. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It is. And, like – you have to trust that if you put in good practice, like Lanny Basham always talks about perfect practice, not practice makes perfect, but perfect practice makes you ready. That type of stuff over time, when that, when you hit that point where now you're needing to compete and you're needing to perform, you just have to trust that the practice you did prepared you and do it all just as if you, you know, were practicing again. Like that, in that way, like if your mental state is that you're, not needing to have this end result. It's just that you're just trying to do things right and apply fundamentals. You'll do it every time. Well, I think you bring up a really good point there, Ruben, of like when you're talking earlier about like this, like being rejuvenated, like, oh man, I'm ready to get back into it. I'm excited about it. Like you're mentally invested in it again, right? Like you're ready, you're stoked, you're excited, you can't wait, you're looking forward to that match. If you're burnt out, yeah, you're, you're not, not, you're to not in that mindset. Hunt, I would think the hunting thing kind of it's a lot like getting prepared for a hunt. If sure. you go out and we go out and go to the farm and do long range shooting and Jim's just absolutely nailing the center of the 700 yard target time and time again, doesn't miss it. And then you go out in the field and you're hunting and you've got this shot at 400 yards and you can't keep your composure because you're like you you apply the now I'm shooting uh, an animal like all of a sudden it's like I've done this at twice the distance, but for some reason my adrenaline isn't letting me, you know, like I'm I'm not able to focus. You need to be able to focus so that's like this shot is the same exact as it's always been. In mm-hmm. practice, whatever. Yeah. But now there's a different end result and you can't let that shake you while you're trying to perform. Yeah. Hmm. And there's a confidence part of like knowing I can do that. So I like Garrett and I we talked about it. so he was doing some training with some guys in Oklahoma weekend later I'm doing some training with some guys in Kansas City and we go out to the long range area that I've got when the crops are out and I can push out to 900 yards I've got steel set to 600 these guys have never shot past 100 150 yards so okay well the first thing we're going to do is get down in the most stable position and show them that you can hit there mm-hmm. you can hit your gun is capable of it let's you know let's go through and do that then after that we'll work on positional items as to how to hit from multiple positions by the time we were done, I had one of the students say, like, so how else can you shoot this? So I stood up and I shot it offhand at 600. 
which Garrett and I have both done repeatedly, and it's not that hard once you know the technique to do it. So, hey, we've got an extra 30 minutes. We teach them how to do it. They step up, and all but one of those guys going through the class hit offhand at 600 yards with Jeez. one of the students That's hitting impressive. on the first shot. Yeah. And, you know, a first shot hit at 600 yards offhand, you're going like, That's awesome. You know, mm-hmm. and the confidence levels for those guys, I'm going through like, okay, we did a two-day class, 300 bucks a person, okay, so they're, they're paying a fair amount of money, and I'm going like, man, did we really get enough hours in? And, and my, I guess my viewpoint on things is, is like, I want to make sure those guys got more than what their money was worth. Mm-hmm. And they get done with it, and they're like, man, I'm really excited about this, 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 this. This right here alone was worth the money. This right here was worth the trip from here, because not a single one of those people was from Missouri. It was Indiana and Ohio and Colorado, and they were flying in and driving in hours to get there. So, you know, they thought that these two or three items were worth the class alone. Everything else was gravy on top, which for me was great. But that's the confidence stuff that they have to take home and work on to where when they show up to a match and there's a 600-yard target and their heart rate's going boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. They're like, I know how to do this. Right. Right. If they don't go home and practice that and prep for it, guess what? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at the parallels there between, you know, the competition shooting and the hunting. And, like, to me, at least, the match is, like, the big buck standing in front of you. Yeah. And, you know, conversely, same thing, right? You know? Yeah, it's, it's like the first time I ever shot a deer and the first time I ever shot a deer with a bow. It's like you can see the sight just going nuts. <laughs> and you're like, okay, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. And you finally make the shot. And then, of course, you know, if, if it's... Like me, I'm 12 years old. You walk up, it's it's a deer. Like, it wasn't huge, wasn't small, it, but it was a deer. Like, this is amazing. First time I shot one with a bow, the end of that arrow is doing this. And you're like, calm down, stupid. You've done this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. You, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you release it, and I had never shot anything with a bow before. So you're like, man, it ran off. Like, why is my... I can't believe I have red arrows. That's stupid. <laughs> Look at your other arrows and go... Oh, something <laughs> something happened here. I got to wait a half hour and find out what's going on. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, a completely different level of excitement. And, and unfortunately for me, and I, I don't know if it's the same for Ruben or for Garrett, at, at this point in time, I don't get that massive adrenaline rush in competition anymore. The, the adrenaline rush usually comes in where you're going through, like, I did that exactly the way I wanted and I planned, and, like, that right there was exciting. So if I don't get that, like, I'm happy – but if I do get that, that's where the adrenaline rush comes in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So for me, I don't. I, I'm like Dylan. I don't get nervous anymore before matches. You know, we shoot. I shot 17 or 18 majors last year, and you know, by the end of the year, I was just like, eh, another match. Yeah. You know, whatever. But for me, where the adrenaline comes in is like at Gen Three Gun with the aerial clay that you have to shoot with a pistol. Yeah. And I don't know how many people in the match got it last year. Like six, seven. I was one of them, and it was like, I don't care what else I do the rest of the season. I got that clay. <laughs> so now in competition to find that adrenaline for me is, is little things like that. But mm-hmm. it actually, I mean, honestly, the reason I keep competing, I mean, I, I like to compete, but it's it's the people. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to change change subjects. You know, it's just, you know, the, the fun really comes in with just hanging out with these guys. Yeah. You know, and so we do all this mental prep, but at the end of the day, I'm doing all this prep just so I can go hang out with my friends. That is. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's hang good out stuff. Hang out dirt pits with my friends just like when I was a kid. That's good stuff. Yeah. I don't get nervous for matches either. I've shot two of them and it's just because i know it's not going to go that well so i just (laughs) you're just cold as ice jim i think i think that that excitement and adrenaline though like some of that maybe going away but i think it's like kind of replaced with other things like you're talking about that comes with that practice that familiarity like you're not shocked you're like my god i hit it you know like you've kind of moved through those processes you're familiar you know exactly not exactly what's going to happen but you got a darn darn good idea 
and like you said, like that adrenaline rush is coming from like all those things coming together. Well, and it gets to the point where it's like, okay, so I'm going to shoot the stage, and this is awesome. And I, you know, I prepared for however many months to, to shoot this match, but as long as after this stage I can talk trash to Dylan, <laughs> it was a success. Mm-hmm. You it know, doesn't happen often, but every now and then he gets one. That's you big. Know, and yeah. go, go back to those parallels. Like I can remember the first time I shot at a buck yeah. with a rifle, and how maybe uncool, calm, and collected I was mm-hmm. versus you know. Nowadays, where you're still pumped up, but you're also able to control it at the same time, maybe, or manage what? it, or, you know, kind of process what's going on. I rolled his ice, man. You're used to that stimulus at that point, and it's not as big of an influence yeah, on the you. The excitement I actually, comes from something else. Like, one, one thing I take a lot out of is uh, the preparation, and knowing that, like, if I'm going to pull a trigger on an animal, like, it's because I'm sure that what I'm doing is it's going to die, mm-hmm. and quickly, mm-hmm. you know, and so, like... I don't think you should really. I mean, there's there's a point where you're learning. I think where you should be surprised that it was dead at the end of this <laughs> the ordeal. But it's like whether it be a target at a match or like you shouldn't pull the trigger unless you know where it's going. Yeah. yeah. What I've taken away biggest thing is that regardless of whether you're brand new or you've been doing it for a long time, is that if you can get talk trash to Dylan oh, afterwards, yeah. it's, definitely you did you did a good if job. If you haven't been on the internet lately, then I mean you I just go find a ton of it. Yeah. Because the off season has been uh more than generous to me, I believe, as far as the uh the, the trash talking. Do you remember Jameson's trash talking to Dylan on his very first ever match at Shooter Source match? Dylan uh got a Dairy Queen and, and oh, Jameson yeah. finished and so Jameson <laughs> Made a big deal about the fact that he beat Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody did at that one. <laughs> uh, good stuff, hey, man. I'd say. Uh, how about we haven't done last calls in a while? We'll throw we'll throw one of those last call rounds out here. I'll kick it off. Kick it off, Jim. Competition shooters are nerds. Yeah, I'm just gonna throw it out there. Totally. But I think there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it when you actually when you actually think about it, the stuff that you're doing. I mean, it's it's. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know, it just reminds me of a lot of the people that you see when they get into uh, race car driving, you know, any kind of racing, any kind of, co- any kind of competing when you have people that are pushing themselves to the absolute limits and trying to squeeze out, you know, more and more and more and get better and better. You realize they're nerds. Yeah. That's all right. So anyway, I don't know what that last call was really for. If you take I anything away, just know that if you are a nerd, it's okay. I was going to say, being You're a nerd is probably okay. really good at something. You're going to make a lot of money someday. <laughs> no, not no. in this game. <laughs> so you're going to spend a lot of money. Great way to spend okay, a lot of money. It's not money. a blanket statement. No, I mean, I was going to say the same thing, Jim. I mean, the, You were going to say that they're nerds too? No, it's a similar... A similar <laughs> thing. I wasn't going to insult them. It's not God's geek, sake. Right? Both- I didn't insult them. I said it's a good thing. That's true. Nothing wrong with being a nerd about certain things. Correct. No, just the the depth the depth and to which you guys go into this and and the detail attention to detail is just super cool. I always get so much out of these talks, and I think you know other people just can benefit. You know, I mean, a person from the outside that's maybe not diving in that deep can certainly pick up a lot and implement some of those things. And and yeah. I think whether you're into competition shooting, shooting in general, maybe the tactical world, you guys are sorting out a lot of. Uh, Working through the kinks. Yeah. The only thing I might recommend not taking away is still DIY spreadsheets. I'm still question question mark on that. All right. Rube? Oh, I think I think that life gets really busy and it can be really easy to set the cruise control and say, like, life is happening to me. I'm just here watching it. This is a deep one, right? 
But for me, competitive shooting has been, not only has it been an outlet that I've been able to, being in sports in younger ages uh, and being a competitive person, it's allowing me an outlet to compete and to constantly push myself mentally and physically to the point where I'm seeing results in things that I do. So whether it be practice with a gun or whether it be the mental preparation for an event, it's it's always, like I said, it can, life can speed up on you and seem like it's just blowing by. And, and unless you're paying attention to things in life, you're going to end up someday where you don't realize what happened because everything just happened to you. And like when you apply yourself in life, whether it be in your career, whether it be in a competition, you're the one that's like in control of how you perform. And so for me, it drives me to do better at everything because I'm now competing at mowing my lawn. I'm competing at being a better dad. I'm competing at just, it, it allows you to like, I think a lot of people play sports when they're younger and it's a competitive outlet and it pushes them to be a better person. And then when you're an adult and you're forced to do adult things, the competition aspect of people's lives go, goes away. And usually when you see people that are high performing, it's because they have something that they are constantly competing at, whether it be a, phys- uh, a physical thing like playing in a soccer league or whether it be, you know, comparing themselves at a, at a match to another person or whatever. Like I think people that compete are typically ones that don't just let life happen to them. They're, they're attacking it. I like mm. that. You should I, write a book. I, I read a book before. I like that a lot. And I guess in the spirit of that, uh, what's your mow time? I don't know what that means. We were Come talking on, man. about I mean, how fast can you mow your lawn? Let's oh, mowing. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty quick. Push mower or riding mower? Oh, you got it. It's all push. Okay. I was going to call you an amateur otherwise. <laughs> what, uh, what division is that? That's, uh, That'd be like limited. That's, that's limited. 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 Yeah. Well, no, sure. no, I'm sorry. Limited would be like the old rotary push mower. Yep. No, yep. That's so push iron. Like, so tack ops. <laughs> like tack. tack ops would be like a, a like self-assisted push yeah. mower. Open, open is like the dude on his platform bad, bad mower. Bad with the seat. Yeah, that has <laughs> yeah. The, the Z-turn. He's yeah. got the, yeah, the Z-turn or what is it, the elliptical handles? So I can do that because at the range I run a zero turn and at home I do a push mower so I can do all the a range like lawnmower. Yeah. You are a nerd. Yeah. So uh, Ruben's nice and deep, like the Grand Canyon and all that good stuff, and I'm going to be more like a puddle. Uh, <laughs> chill out and have a little fun. You know, there's uh, there's kind of the aspect, like you talked about, you know, give somebody a hard time, make fun of them, you know, bust their balls, right? You can get your balls bust and still have a smile on your face and laugh and joke with everybody else, and it's a hell of a lot more fun. And, like, you know, Ruben and I have been at matches where it's like, all right, so how do we screw with this guy? How do we screw with that guy? And then you hope they're going to take it right because if they're not, you're going to give it to them three times harder uh, mm. until they start to. And so we've done that. Uh, yeah. And most of them end up perceiving it really, really well. And that's kind of the cool thing, like what Garrett said about the community and the people that you hang out with. If you can do that and you can be a little lighthearted and just have some fun, not take everything so serious, it's going to be a lot more enjoyable time because at the end of the ride, we all die. Enjoy the time until you get there. Right. So I've got three kids. I got a wife. I got everything wonderful at home. I got a job that I love. I've never worked a day in my life. And then I turn around and I get to go play. So you're probably not going to see me upset for more than about 30 seconds on the range. You know, even so, even much, <laughs> so much for not going deep. Yeah. yeah, it's not that deep. Well, you Foot wait, you, you waited in. Waited for in. for yeah. doing this pretty <laughs> bad. Yeah. That's about as deep as it gets for me. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Good job. It takes. Couldn't uh, even see that he was reading it off a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> on paper is on my hand. I gotta say, 
busting people's balls at the range and not knowing how they're going to accept it when there's all those guns around <laughs> is at, no, at it, first so the trick kind is kind of a bold move. They have to set the gun down first. Okay, got Wait it. till it's unloaded and clear and back in the holster. Then, then uh, proceed. Yeah. It's all about the, procedure. Did you plan on okay. sucking yeah. that bad? The Delay most dangerous weight. one was when Freilich was making ready at the, the Trigun one year and holding up a quiet police sign while he's making ready after his little podcast appearance after World Shoot. That, that was probably the... We thought Dylan was going to get shot. I was about... <laughs> the only thing, was, it would have been bird shot, so I might have been okay. Okay, yeah. So, maybe. So final thoughts for me. So my journey through competition has been kind of interesting. So the reason I did it at first and what I focused on at first is totally different than it is now. And hmm. I didn't even talk about this earlier earlier in the podcast. So when I got into competitions, right after I got back from Afghanistan, the person who got me into competition shooting, and I shot a couple matches with him before we deployed, ended up getting killed over there. And so when I got back, I, I started just to kind of honor him and to kind of give me something to focus on. Because as an infantryman, as a, you know, a military sniper, you know, we, we've got this, this focus and very goal-oriented, and I didn't have any goals when I got home. So I was like, I'm oh, going to yeah. get, get good at competition shooting because it's a discipline I enjoy. It's a discipline I understand. So when I first got back, that was kind of my focus was I want to get really good at it. And I'm super competitive because I'm an A-type personality. And uh, I'm, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm there to win. And over the years, I've gotten older. I've, you know, I've calmed down a little bit. My focus now, so I talked about all my lists and everything. There's one thing that's always the number one thing on the list. And I didn't even mention this earlier. Have more fun. So how can I have yeah. more fun? Okay, I'm going to shoot more matches that I know my friends are going to be at. I'm going to be a little more selective of the matches because maybe I know people that are shooting there and they're people I like to shoot with. So now what shooting is for me is a chance to hang out with friends and become a better person. You know, it's like Ruben touched on that. As a, a competitive person, we, that drive carries over into other aspects of life, you know, your, your, your drive to succeed. So for me now, you know, what I take from competition is friendships and how do I be a better person. You know, and if I, you know, shoot well, that that's just icing on the cake. What was your number two goal? What? What was your number two goal? You said number one's always the same. Oh, I'm confused. Well, this is what you said you were going to have as a goal last time we were on the podcast. Oh, no, that wasn't on this podcast. That was a different podcast. Okay. So What's number, your number two goal okay, right now? Okay, so. Way to go, So I, I put out. No, no, no. That's fine. No, I, I get, I get what picking. It was I had a goal. I made a national announcement in 2018 that I was going to beat Dylan in a major match in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I literally, like, Wisconsin three-gun championship, one target away. I mean, he beat me by, like, three-tenths of a point. Yeah, I was so it was close. It was close. The good news is, is yesterday, when we were at the range here, and we did the little red dot pistol challenge, I totally beat Dylan. Yeah, he did get me there. I figured out what the problem was, though. (laughs) So Garrett's kryptonite is a shot timer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Oh, so, okay, the little beep. Yep. Hmm. I wouldn't call that kryptonite. Yeah, pretty much kryptonite. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you bust your friend's balls. Apparently, Dylan's is a freaking razor. (laughs) Not going to (laughs) happen. Oh, yeah, dude. Rocking the locks. It's looking good. I actually got it cleaned up before coming up here. I was expecting Ruben to have a little more hair, but... Apparently not. Only a short while ago, he did have quite a bit. Excellent. All right. Well, good stuff. Thank you guys very much for joining us. Always good to have uh, visitors in from out of town. And uh, to everybody listening out there, let us know what you think. And um, I don't know, future other ideas for other topics similar to these ones. We covered a lot. A lot of From reloading to uh, competitive lawn mowing and the fact that we're all going to die. (laughs) <laughs> and that Garrett beat Dylan. So yeah. good there stuff. Go. We'll catch everybody next time. Happy hunting and shooting out there. 
Bye. 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 All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.